0: Someone said this morning they love Romans as much or more than they did Revelation. So, anyway, I will tell you this, these sermons, uh, one of the reasons I've kind of put this off for a while is uh, because I'm spending a lot of time every week, like I did in Revelation, getting ready for this, reading a lot, studying a lot, digging a lot. But it's one of those things. Romans is a difficult book. There's no doubt about that. But I think the more you study it, the more you read it, the more you understand it. And I hope that if nothing else, as we're going through here, that it's going to encourage all of us to enter into our own private study of Romans. Not to just do it once, but when we finish it, as the rest of the Word of God, that we would go back and we would study through it. Uh, all over again. And I want to say this to you this morning, that your Bible reading and study needs to have two aspects to it. One of those is just reading through the words on a constant, steady kind of thing. The other thing is to get into deeper study of particular passages, like we do in the Bible study groups uh, and that sort of thing. But do do that on your own, too. Don't wait for me to bring something up or something to come up in your Bible study group. But as you're reading through Scripture, uh, I would encourage you to Go into deeper study when it comes to particular things that seem to speak to you where you're at at that, that point in your life. Uh, we're still in chapter 1. We we are going to be almost through chapter 1 today, but probably not quite, beginning with verse 17. And I just would challenge us to remember all the things that Paul has talked about uh, from the very beginning he he 's he's really encourages an apostles he hears the good news coming out of Rome that these christians are are, are very faithful and they 're witness to a, a very uh, difficult culture around them and, and we understand that they were uh, undergoing severe persecution for their faith, but because they were standing firm in their faith, their faith was becoming known by believers around the world, and, and, and they were serving as an encouragement to the rest of the church uh, in, in a lot of places uh, where people had never been to Rome and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but then Paul gets into his theological treatise that is going to go all the way through the rest of this book. And I want say to you this morning, there's a sense in which the gospel is one of the most simple things you could possibly come up with. Just a few elements, very well connected with each other. And when you've gone all the way through it, you've done it. But there's another plane of the gospel that is very complicated. And this is the plane that Paul is, is working in when he's, he's uh, writing this letter to the church in Rome uh, as we said before, that Romans could very well be called the greatest theological treatise that has ever been been written. But he's always, already demonstrated that, that even though God had created the heavens and the earth and he introduced mankind into the picture that, uh, that man had fallen away and sinned against him and that God had given mankind over to the immorality of their heart that was created in that fall or by that fall, And that mankind in general and in a general sense had had committed very evil and wicked things against him from the very beginning. And because of that, the wrath of God was revealed from heaven. Just like we're talking about with this hurricane. There's a sense in which is the wrath of God coming upon the sinfulness of mankind. But at the same time, Paul makes it very clear that there, that there is this type of theology or this, this perspective on things called the natural, what's called natural revelation. That through the creation around us, that God has made himself known in such a way that there is no one ever that will ever be able to say that they didn't know that there was a God. That as we look upon creation, we see his fingerprints all over it. And so that, that, that tells every one of us that God exists. At the same time, natural revelation is not sufficient to bring someone to a saving knowledge of Christ Jesus. Special revelation, the Bible is necessary For that to happen. And not only the Bible itself, but also the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit has to enter into this picture as well. We began chapter 2. And one of the things that we brought attention to was this is that. Because the Jewish people, the, the, the Israelites initially and then eventually the Jews, had been given their word of God, the Old Testament. And in that, the law of God, that they above all people were rendered least excusable. Because they knew what God's truth was. They had it in written form. We understand now that these things have been passed on to the New Testament church along with further special revelation, what we call the New Testament. So the truth is this, out of all the people that have ever lived on the face of the planet, that people who are of the church uh, uh, in, in the day that we live are least excusable. In other words, God has revealed more to us than any other people on the face of the planet. We understand that to come to a special or a uh, uh, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ requires that we have the special revelation. God has given it to us that we would know it, that we would live it, that we would preach it, that we would teach it, that we would own it, and that we would spread it. In chapter 1, he used uh, the the pronoun they and them over and over again. And when he got into chapter 2, he shifted to you and to your, which means this. It's not that they used to do those things or this was all about them years ago. But what he says in verse 1 in chapter 2 is, Therefore, you are without excuse. God has made himself known to you through natural revelation. He's also known, made himself known to us through the Bible. So there's none of us that can have, have an excuse that we don't know. Because we do know. He's told us. And we have the advantage of having the Bible available to us in a way that people never have in the past. I don't know how many Bibles you have. I probably have seven or eight or ten of them. Every one that I have has been read. We need to take advantage of it. To read the Word of God, to study the Word of God as often as we can. Verse 17, But if you bear the name Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and the truth, you therefore who teach uh, teach another do not teach yourself. You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your, uh, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? The name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will will he not judge you? is through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is uh, circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. That he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. I read that last part for a reason, because I want you to understand something, that Paul, at the end of this chapter, redefines an understanding of what constitutes a Jewish person. It's not the outward sign of circumcision, it's the inward sign of a circumcised heart. You understand there's a sense in which you can say, I'm a Christian, therefore I'm a Jew. In other words, Paul, in a sense, redefines our understanding of what what constitutes a Jew here. There's a sense in which New Testament believers, all of us, whether we have Jewish descent or not, we would be classified as being of those people. Do we rely upon the law? And boast in God. And know his will. And approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. I mean, does that apply to us? Do we rely on law, the law of God? Let me ask you something. If I ask you right now on the spot to tell me what the Ten Commandments are, could you do that? Seriously. Some of you would get a few. Some of you get all of them, all ten of them. Some of you get a few. Could you do it? Now, let me just ask you this. If if, if we say we can't do it, we don't even know what the Ten Commandments are, then how could we say that we're abiding by the law of God if we don't even know what the law of God is? It's not hard. This ten little commandments. We also know this that Jesus defined the law. He, he reduced it to two laws. Right? Do you at least know what those two laws are? The first one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. That covers those first four. And the other one is to love your neighbor as yourself. That covers those last six. So are we doing those things? Are we loving the Lord our God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength? And are we loving our neighbor as we love ourselves? Remember, we were saying last week that there's a, there's a natural law that has to do with our relationships with, with other people that, that you don't even need to have to have the Bible to discern what it is. And, and, and that is this, is if you don't want to be murdered yourself, why in the world would you ever murder someone else? The summation of it is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That if you don't want your stuff stolen from you, then why would you ever steal anything from someone else? And you can understand that people, even if people didn't believe in God, if they, if they abided by those, that simple rule, do unto other people as I want them to do to me, then this world would be a place of bliss. But the fact of the matter is, is we simply don't do that. Why? Because we are sinners. You feel like you are a guide to the blind. A light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He also says that we are the light of the world. That the light of Christ shines into this world through us. We're supposed to be able to correct people that are in error. People have all kinds of ideas about God. They have all kinds of ideas about His being. They have all kinds of ideas about what He's supposed to be like and what they think He should be like, and etc, etc, etc. Are we able with our Bible to teach them about this great and awesome God? Are we able to shed light in the darkness? There's a sense in which being a teacher is a calling from God. There's another sense in which all believers are teachers. I mean, so teaching is something that we all bear some degree of responsibility for. Now, James, in the third chapter of his epistle, warns people that they, that we, you know, that a lot of us not become teachers because teachers will be held to a higher account. But there's a sense in which all of us, Now, I think this is what Paul is getting at here. He's not talking about a special class of people we call teachers. He's talking about each one of us on a personal level. Are we able to correct the foolish? Are we able to teach the immature? We should be able to. Why? Because we have in the law the Bible, the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. He's given us the material. We have all the teaching material that we need to have. And he's called us to teach other people these things. In verse 21, he gets into something that you and I would classify as hypocrisy. Now, the word doesn't even appear here in the Greek. Paul doesn't call anybody a hypocrite to talk about hypocrisy specifically, but as we read through here, we know that's what he's talking about. Hypocrisy. Now, what is a hypocrite? Hypocrite is someone who says one and tells you to do one thing, but they do something else, right? In other words, they hold you to one standard. They have a standard for you, but they have a different standard for themselves. There's a sense in which we're all hypocrites, right? You understand that? Every one of us, in some ways, in some aspects, are, we're hypocritical. We have, we have very often, we have much higher expectations for other people than we have for ourselves. We have this innate ability to excuse ourselves of bad behavior when at the same time we might condemn other people for doing similar things. We have a way of justifying ourselves. We have excuses that we can come up that cover ourselves. It's so easy for us as sinners, and sinners do this. This is one of the natures of sin, and that is that you hold other people to a higher standard than you hold to yourself. One of the things that we need to be doing as we're going through the second chapter here is to reevaluate where we're at. I don't know about you, but I need to reevaluate re- re- myself all the time, constantly. It's easy to get off track. It's easy to forget about the things you really need to focus on and start worrying and contending with all the peripheral things and lose sight of the things that are most central, the things that are most important. Verse 21, you therefore who, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? let remember this. I know I've brought this up a number of times, and that is that the law goes far deeper than we anticipate or think it is or does. It's not something that's just on the surface. It goes down deep inside. It, it goes beyond the act itself to the intention behind it. The heart behind it. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it very clear that even though you may have come here today thinking, I'm doing pretty doggone good because I have never literally murdered anyone. And I am doing doing very well because I, I don't steal things from other people. And I've never committed adultery against my husband or my wife. Jesus made it very clear to to the people he was preaching to who were a bunch of Pharisaic legalists. They believed it was by keeping the law themselves that they made themselves right with God and they sustained themselves rightly before God. And you can imagine it took the wind out of their sails when he said this, well, maybe you've never murdered someone, but if you've been angry with anyone, then you have committed that, that you've broken that commandment sufficiently to be thrown into fiery hell for all of eternity. If you've ever lusted after uh, someone that you're not married to, then you have committed that crime of adultery against your spouse. Now, how many people do you think were sitting there thinking that now I'm pretty innocent at this point on that Sermon on the Mount that day? It's easy to preach and teach other people to do certain things and then not hold yourself to that same standard. I've been on the examining committee at Presbytery now for for probably 18, 20 years. So I'm one of the guys that sits there with all of these new young people, usually younger people, coming in to be ordained for, to become ministers. And I can tell you this, I'm convinced of this thing, is that men at least, the primary sin that they deal with over and over again, more than anything else, that besetting sin that they just can't hardly get their finger on, is lust. And we're talking about guys that are going into the ministry, Out of all the people that I've been a part of of examining, which is probably somewhere between probably 70 or 80 or 100 at this point, there's only been one single time when when the sin that they struggle with the most didn't come up as being lust. So what are your besetting sins? What do you struggle with the most? Do you rob temples? Well, we read that and we wonder what's going on here, and I was thinking about this the other day, and if you look at Paul's description of the spiritual condition of Athens, he was really impressed with Athens in the sense that they had a they had temples there, they had shrines there for just unbelievable number of gods. So he declared them to be very religious people. And I would imagine that Rome was very much like Athens was. That they had many, many different gods that they worshipped and they had shrines and temples for them. But as I'm reading this this morning, I'm wondering if maybe this might not have something to do with our giving to the church. is sometimes we're not guilty of withholding the good gifts that God has given to us from the church itself. And in a sense, withholding them from God and doing that. If you really begin to think about a lot of these things and look into them deeply, then it's, you can almost always come up with some aspect in which, yeah, I am guilty of that. I mean, who here can say that they've given everything to the church they possibly could? Anybody? You who boast in the law through you're breaking the law, do you dishonor God? And the truth is this is we break the law of God all the time. We're sinners. That is our nature. Our nature is to break God's law. And the only thing that can possibly make any difference is Christ Jesus. Because he is the perfect law keeper. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written Most of you know that for even a good part of my adult life, I was an unbeliever, even though I grew up in the church. But one of the things that turned me off to church when I was a youngster was this, just the plain hypocrisy, hypocrisy that I saw everywhere. People claiming this, that, or the other, so talking about doing this, that, and the other. I just didn't see a lot of it going on in reality, not people doing doing what they professed they believed. Let me tell you, guys and gals, there's a world out there that looks upon us very suspiciously. And very often we do exactly what it thinks we're going to do. If we ever want to get the attention of the world, what we have to do is do things that it does not expect from us. Like, love them where they are, instead of looking down upon them with our condescending attitude. Projecting to them that, look what you're doing, I would never do something like that. We cannot have a holier-than-thou attitude toward the world and expect to have any kind of a positive influence and impact upon it. What the world needs to, for, to hear us say is this, is we, like you, are sinners. The difference is we know the solution to our sin, and you don't. Jesus is that solution. And he can save you just like he saved me. The sinner. Circumcision was an Old Testament sacrament applied to male children eight days old. It was a sign and seal used to set apart that special people of God in the Old Testament. We understand that circumcision is no longer a sacrament that's practiced in the church. We don't encourage that male children be circumcised for religious reasons. But we live in a different age. The sacrament of circumcision has been replaced in the New Testament by the sacrament of baptism. See, this is one of the reasons why we strongly believe that children of that the children of believers ought to be circumcised or ought to be baptized and that was because the children of believers in the old testament were circumcised 25, for indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. We could read that as saying, for indeed baptism is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of baptism or or the law, then your circumcision has become unbaptism. I know I messed that up. I mean, you get the point. If, therefore, the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? God, Paul has already praised Gentiles, unbelievers, for sometimes doing what they knew was right. You see, it comes down to this. In those last couple of verses... He's not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart. A transformed heart. Now let me ask you something. Can you change your heart? What do you think? Have you tried to do that? Have you attempted to do that? Are you attempting to do that right now? Changing your own heart? Have you been able to do it? Can you do it? Will you succeed where other people have failed? The answer to that is no. Because God alone can circumcise the heart. If you're a believer, you're a believer for one reason, and that's because God has circumcised your heart. He's not opened up your mind, but He's opened up your heart to His truth and to His reality. You've experienced His love And you love him. Salvation, my friends, is of God. It's all of God. Aren't you glad that we're no longer held to the letter of the law? Aren't you glad that you're not going to be judged based upon how well you kept those Ten Commandments? Is it nice to know that your praise isn't from men when you do what is right in the eyes of God? Or steer away from things that are not right in the eyes of God. That you're not praised by men, but you're praised by God. For being truth to your faith. So what are we going to do with all of this? Are we going to continue on with business as usual? Are we going to take to heart the things that God has said to us through this writing of the Apostle Paul this morning? Is it going to make a difference? Seriously, is chapter chapter 2 in Romans going to make a difference in the manner in which you live your life this week? Or is it just going to be life as usual? It's very easy for you and I to come here on Sunday morning and get all pumped up and walk out of here. I would imagine that most of us will not even remember what passage we read for the sermon in a day or two. Let me tell you, I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. I forget I forget, I forget, I forget. But having the Word of God doesn't do us any good unless we actually apply it. See, this has been the problem all along for many, many people. And that is very often when they had the Word of God, they didn't really apply it. They didn't use it. They didn't live by it. Being a believer is transformational. In other words, when you become a believer, you're not the same person that you were before, which means this, you can't do the same things you used to do and feel okay about it. Your conscience has been pricked. And very often when you're sinning, you know you're doing it. And you feel guilty for it. Because God has written his law in your heart, not in a book. When was the last time you repented? Seriously, when was the last time you took a a real evaluation of your life and considered what are the sins that I'm committing and and, and maybe committing continually? How many times have you endeavored to be done with a particular sin, only find yourself doing it all over again within just a matter of a few days? The reason for those things is because very often we try to do them on our own. You cannot kill the sin in you by yourself. Neither can I. Only God can do that. But we need to pray that He would, that He will that we really, truly, honestly would be bright, shining lights in the darkness of this world. Not in pride, not in self-centeredness, but in the love of Christ. For our fellow man. Privileged to do it set apart to do it.